You're listening to the Even Odds Podcast on the Constructed Criticism Network. Here are your hosts, Mason and Trey, and thank you for rolling with us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 20th episode of the Even Odds Podcast. I am your birthday boy host, Mason, and I'm joined by my friend, Trey McLaren. Celebration station right here. <laughs> Love it. Well, today we were recording the 20th episode of the Even Odds Podcast. It feels like the first time I've ever done this before, and I'm very, <laughs> I'm very excited to get down. We had a, a little bit of life issues get in the way, and we're very sorry. We recorded an episode actually right after I got back from the MC. And honestly, something went wrong with the audio file, and it just wasn't listenable, and I thought about putting it up, and it just wasn't good enough. Then we had a special guest come on, and we recorded the episode, but we felt like we could do... The episode's very important, and I, we're going to do it again. We're going to do it better. And we just didn't want to put up the episode that we felt was like not giving the... Not only the, the, the respect and attention it deserves, but also the quality. And we just we both felt independently that was like, this is something we just probably shouldn't put out right now. And I respect their decision for that, and I'm very excited to have them on in the future and have that conversation. So they they will be on sometime in the future, probably when Trey is working. So <laughs> uh, sorry about all of that. It kind of fell through, and we've both had insane work schedules. So we're very sorry for those two weeks. We hate missing weeks. Hopefully, we're never going to miss a week again. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think we've ever recorded more episodes in a week and then not put an episode out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I recorded two and a half because I almost started to record an episode by myself. I actually just to have a short one out. And then I was so sick slash busy with work that I just couldn't do it. And so I was just like, I don't want to put up a bad thing. So we're going to have a great episode today. And our great episode is brought to you by the patrons. We launched our Patreon and we went on hiatus. The perfect money move. <laughs> Strike while the iron's hot. That's what they always say. Make sure to put out a lot of content when you launch your Patreon. Go silent for two weeks. Uh, so we want to thank our new patrons of the show. We have Jeremy, Lucas, Timothy, July, Adrian, and Corey. Thank you all so much for being patrons of the podcast. It means a whole lot. And we have another sponsor we're very excited by. Not only viewers like you. Well, And before we go into that, I just want to say as well that the, the patrons have been great. Uh, Discord's been popping off. And it's been a lot of fun discussion since that launched, and we've been having a good time in there. Yeah, I, you know, I think I said this in the episode we recorded in the past that's lost, the lost episode, <laughs> uh, is that, you know, I was at the Mythic Championship, and it was like, I checked the Discord, and y'all were having conversations the whole time. I was very entrenched in Autumn's games and hanging out with people and whatnot, so I didn't have a lot of time to check it. But y'all were talking like a good space, you know, especially for, you know, we, we have we just launched our Patreon, so it's not like it's very big, and they had constant conversation, which is good. I mean, it's hard when you only have six people, so... Um, but yes, we do have another ad. Uh, our, our friends Wayfinder Travel Agency are back with the summer's must-see non-stop excitement experience. Are you tired of the everyday mythic grind? Are you certain that there must be more excitement to life than this? Wayfinder Travel Agency is here to help. Get ready for intrigue, adventure, and non-stop peril with the Never Fear Demir Secret Agent Mission is Here package. Your br- you brave soul have been hand-selected to join an elite task force. Your mission is to infiltrate the missing and totally overrun Simic Adaptive Biogenic Ooze Cruise Ship and show those murderous slimes what a real hero looks like. The Never Fear Demir Secret Agent mission is here. Save the day, keep it quiet, or die trying. Wow. I've never heard that uh, advertisement before, 
that's exciting. I'm very excited to go on that trip. My my interest is super peaked, as if it was the first time I've heard that. <laughs> For sure. So I would never reuse an ad. <laughs> even if an episode was lost, and one day might come back out. Yeah, that's very exciting, you know. The Demir are very sneaky, can trust them, but with a good cause like that, how could you not? Yeah, I mean, those oozes are going to kill people, unless you sign up. <laughs> That's true. You know what else is going to kill people if we make them wait any longer on this Patreon-only question? So, let's roll that clip. Hi, guys. Tim here. There's been lots of talk about the London Mulligan that Watts will be testing at the next Mythic Championship. Um, specifically, most of the talk has been centered around whether or not the rules change is a good idea. Personally, I don't have any idea how it's going to play out, and I don't think anyone else really does either. What I'd like to talk about is the method they're using to test it. I've seen some criticism, but I think that using a Mythic Championship as a testing ground is the best way to get a lot of quality information from players who are going to be trying really hard to break the new rule. Plus, it allows them to do it in a setting that doesn't affect the rest of the Magic ecosystem. So I want to know, what do you think about using the Mythic Championship to trial new mulligan rules? Yeah, so Tim, thank you very much for that question. And, uh, you know, generally, if you're going to ask a question, you should pause and give us an opportunity to answer it instead of just giving the answer at the same time as the question. Um, but I do think that you raise a good point, right? That this is an interesting way to get a data set that's usable and useful while at the same time not having to disrupt the game as a whole. And you get it from high-level players, and you get it in an environment where it matters, so you know that people are trying to exploit the rule and use it to the maximum benefit, because this is the biggest tournament that they're going to be using it in in the first place. So it is effective, I think, in that way, and they've proven that in the past when they first introduced the scry rule, previously an approach where they took a very similar approach. Um, it's been interesting because at the time that they made that announcement, they also had made announcements about a rule that sounds quite similar to this rule. And at least when they were making the decisions of what changes to make to the mulligan rules at that time, they thought a little bit differently. Mason, would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there was an article that I saw got shared back when that first happened. Also, we had the benefit of talking about this three weeks after the fact, which I think gives a, a unique lens to it too. But they had talked about how the mulligan, the London mulligan, as it will be called, was a little bit too strong in older formats. Now, that was back in 2012, 2013, something like that, when that article came out, which is insane to think the Vancouver mulligan's been around for almost that long. Um, so, magic's changed a lot. The modern and legacy have changed a lot. But I do think it's particularly strong in formats that have low interaction at cheap mana and like high power like modern. On the other hand, I don't think it's the end of the world. To have like this kind of mulligan rule. I think that decks like Dredge for sure get a, a power boost. But they do need to have like certain pieces. And while you're likely to find those pieces. The decks can whiff. And they will fold the hate. And I'm more interested to see how like decks like Grixis Death Shadow Chalice decks respond. Because Chalice of the Void is particularly well positioned. Especially if like you go Gemstone Cavern you know, or Simeon Spirit Guide into Chalice. It's very powerful. And even Dredge decks will have problems. So. Yeah, and it's also, it's, it's interesting, right? Because the goal of this mulligan rule or the Vancouver mulligan rule, the whole point is to try to like reduce the amount of non-games that happen due to the high level of variance that happens with magic, right? And it, there's always some worry and concern about what that's going to look like and whether or not you're going to go too far in the wrong direction and you're going to favor certain types of decks or strategies. Particularly but, combo. Particularly combo. But like right now, can any of us even imagine like mulligan without scrying? Like at this point? Like, it's now just been so much part of the game, and it's been for so long. Like, to the idea that we ever did it differently before that seems insane, right? Because it's so normal now. Mm. And uh, depending on what happens with this and the testing that happens, I think it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. Because I think that it would very, very quickly acclimate to being just 
a normal way that things happen, and we'd never even think about the fact that it was a change. 100%. I also think that, you know, we mentioned how modern is the scariest format for this. I also think this is a way to test it with high-level play and see if it's too powerful for maybe best to one on Arena. You know, Arena is a format that suffers a lot from variants, and while the red decks get better because they're essentially combo decks, so do your, like, interactive spell decks when it's like, well, I have to keep this Chromium, even though it might not be very good in the mirror, but I'll just bottom it now, you know, so... Right, well, and at least with the red decks in standard, they do need a critical mass of cards, right? Like, they have to have enough cards to kill you. Like, yeah. going down in cards is a real cost to them. Now, Mason, what do you think about the possibility of having different mulligan rules for different formats? I was about to mention that. So that's one thing that I'm kind of pro in, in the theory. So there's a lot of bad things, in air quotes, that happen with that. It's a lot of confusion for new players. Um, it, it creates all some extra burden. Like, in this format, I do this. But in that format, I do this. And this, I do this. Um, but... Magic's a game of multiple games, and Commander already does that differently. Uh, you know, there are different formats do things differently. Two-headed Giant plays differently. And while those aren't the most popular... Well, Commander is the most popular format. But not the most comp- popular competitive format. There is a little bit of like, hey, you need to learn these rules. You need to learn these triggers. And, you know, you can always just ask your opponent at the beginning. And I think what matters more is having less non-games and making sure games are more fun. So I think it's totally possible what happens is we do the London Mulligan. We realize it's just a little bit over the line. We don't want to ban Faithless Looting for some reason. Which, by the way... Not like last time. For real, March 11th in two days, there's another ban list announcement. So we might be seeing Faithless when you get banned. Check out the Patreon-only episode this week to hear about that. Ding, ding. Plug. Uh, <laughs> but so, like, you know, if we'll say Faithless Looting's still around. We think it's too powerful for having Modern right now. But the Vancouver Mulligan still helps create non-games. So we're going to give that to Modern Legacy Vintage, you know, because Vintage, they benefits the most from this rule. Having Bizarre is insane in that deck for Dredge. And then Standard and Limited are going to play by the, the London Mulligan, and they're going to get to draw their seven and put, you know, one back or two back, depending on the amount of mulligans they get. And that would create less non-games. I would actually just be fine if even only Limited was the only one. Because then it's like, and for constructed formats, you draw like this, like you do the Vancouver, and for Limited, you do this. And, you know, I think that is also different enough rule sets that it won't confuse new players. Yeah, and you know, I mean, while it's always a concern, and it's a thing that you have to deal with, and it's a thing that Magic certainly has to fight all the time, because Magic has an extremely steep learning curve. Like, right? like And a lot of rules, like specifically the, rules. Right, right. Yeah. But the, the point from, like, it, it's really interesting, because Magic has a very low entry point. Like, you can learn the basics of the game in, like, 15 minutes. But, like, to actually start to understand the game is, is astronomical, mm-hmm. right? And so I understand that from a design standpoint and a rule standpoint, they have to be conscientious of that in order to, like, onboard new players. But I think that a, a a change like that is not so, you know, uh, uh, so much of an impediment that it would be when you start going from, like, standard to an eternal format or anything else like that, right? Like, because when you go from, like, standard to modern, you also have to start learning things like morph and, you know... You learn all, every keyword. All, exactly. Sure. All of these different mechanics and all of these other things that happen for all of these different cards for things that you never played if you're a new player coming in. And, like, that's an, an, a lot of work that has to be put in. And so the fact that there would be a different mulligan rule, if that's a thing they end up doing, I don't think is that big of a deal. Yeah, and I, I think the the fix to make it specifically limited is a clean fix. Because at that point, it is like, hey, if I built my deck and brought it, I mulligan like this. And if I go to a draft or something where I do sealed, right, I mulligan like this. And one of the biggest problems was, maybe not the biggest problem, but the biggest perceived problem with sealed and draft is that some players feel it isn't skill intensive, which I think is insane the more I learn about it, but they feel like it's all randomness. And getting to reduce that randomness and make sure you find your good card while would lead to more bomby games, and limited mulliganing is very bad. You know, in recent uh, Ravnica Allegiance, I believe is the name of the new set, I take the draw every chance I can online and I'm playing draft or sealed. 
because Ben Stark says it's a it's a card advantage format, so I play it like a card advantage format. And I would not mulligan to like my bomb six drop. I wouldn't I wouldn't mulligan to a fear absolution if I had any reasonable hand, so Yeah, you're gonna keep a lot more six land hands in limited than you would in constructed most yeah. of the time. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I, I hope that was helpful. You know, I, I think by the way, Grix's Death Shadow is the deck that benefits the most as a non-combo deck. So if you're playing London, I look into Grix's Death Shadow. I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that leads us into our main topic, which we're here to talk about modern. That's right. We're going to both do our top five decks in modern right now as we see it. There's been a lot of talk on Twitter about this is like tier one, 1.5, and two, blah, 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 blah. We just want to pick the five decks that we think are the best decks in modern right now and just kind of have a conversation with you all about that. Just because we think it's interesting and we do differ a lot. Uh, I, I We didn't share each other's deck. Uh, well, how about this? I knew what Trey picked after I picked mine. So he doesn't know what I have. And I know that we have differing opinions on this as even the order, I'm going to guess. So Trey, do you want to go off with your number five? Sure. Uh, my number five deck is Eldrazi Tron. The old Eldrazi's. Um, uh, the reason being primarily is I think that because of the way that the metagame has sh- shaped up, which is weird sometimes to talk about a modern metagame because of how like diverse and sparse it is in a general tournament. Um, Would but, you call it the winner's metagame almost? Yeah, I okay. think that that's a fair place to say. But um, I think that as a result, a card that has gained a lot of value uh, in the way that the metagame has shaped up is Chalice of the Void. And that that card is very powerful and is very good against the top tier decks that are there. And as a result of that, having something that lets you play Chalice early and often and then really abuses that type of a situation is a place that I think is a real good place to be if you're looking to attack the winner's metagame as opposed to just, like, picking what the best deck is or anything else like that. And I do think that Eldrazi Tron is probably one of the best Chalice decks that's available. You can play Chalice uh, on one uh, relatively consistently, and then you also have other disruption spells, and then you also have Clock to back it up, right? Because you need not just hate cards, but you got to end the game. Yeah, I do like the fact that, like, because a deck like Free Win Red, because you were talking about, like, Chalice, you would like Chalice when I'm talking about your deck list. And I was like, well, Free Win Red is a deck that you can play. But it doesn't have, well, it can't have Fast Start. Sometimes it keeps a lot of hands that are just, like, a turn one Chalice and hope it's enough for a couple turns. That deck does, like, turn one Chalice and a turn three Thought Not Seer a lot. And that's a big game. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, okay, well, they've got their removal spell that they're sitting on, that they're going to get rid of the chalice, you know, whatever their ancient grudge or whatever. And it's like, okay, you chalice them, they take a turn off, then you thought not their thing, then they have to take another turn off, and then you start smashing, and it's big game. And so I think that I think that, that is a good place to be if you're looking to attack the top decks, which is why it comes in for me at number five. Yeah, I don't think I would personally play Aldrazi Tron for a couple reasons, but I do like Chalice of the Void. I do like that, like, if you're going to pick a a deck that's all in on like not interacting uh, in a chalice type way. At least your deck has proactive draws. I think one of the problems with chalice decks sometimes is that they lead to these non-interactive draws, and they don't commit hard enough as other decks do when they're trying to lock people out. It's kind of like this half lock step where it's like I'm a aggressive like beat downy deck that can also do this prison type style. And so I like that your deck can at least go like, hey, turn two thought not see you're still good. Turn three reality smasher like that will attack you regardless of how bad your matchup is. If they, like, mulligan and you thought not in Reality Smasher, that probably will win a game. So right. I do like that. So what's your number five deck, Mason? My number five deck is Blue-White Control. Why? Always. <laughs> Always this. I actually wasn't too big of a fan of Blue-White Control and hadn't thought about it until I talked to Chantel of the Proving Commands podcast. A podcast I help out with. You should definitely check it out on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, and they were talking uh, – she was talking about how – 
Blue-white control is actually kind of weirdly well-positioned across what a lot of people perceive as the top decks right now. And I was listening to them, and I was like, that makes a lot of sense, you know? Some of the decks that people think of the top best decks right now are like Dredge, Arclight Phoenix, um, Grixis Death Shadow. Well, that matchup's kind of hard, but, like, the other two are pretty good. Humans, it's a matchup where you have a lot of tools for. The decks are playing Settle now, for example. You get Rest in Peace. You get Stony Silence for the weird artifact decks that are seeing play, specifically the Anvil combo. Um... I forget, but the, the new KCI is what people right, are calling Semblance it. Amble. Semblance Amble, thank you. Yeah. And so you get a lot of those cards, you get a lot of creature hate, and you still get those powerful ending games, but you don't have these bolts and, like, helixes, which are fine right now in Modern, but they're really good against, like, the lower decks, like, not the top five decks a lot of people are talking about, and they're really bad against the top five. Like, the top five decks don't really care about Lightning Bolt, and the part of the reason why is because what a lot of people perceive as the best deck, Art Like Phoenix, which we'll get to eventually, I know, for both of us. Um... That deck really is a really good bolt deck, and as such, like it puts pressure on decks to not be bad against bolt. This deck is really good against bolt. Doesn't have to play bolt like the Jeskai deck does, or doesn't get to, as some people might say. So I think blue white control is actually really well positioned. And if you want to play a non-interactive strategy that is like a control deck, I should say, I think this is probably the second best option you have. At this point, I think listeners of the podcast know where I stand on blue-white control in regards to modern, but... I would only play two Terminus if that makes you feel better. It does, a little bit. (laughs) I'd play play two Settle, two Verdict, two Terminus. Yeah, I'd be split. Settle is certainly better now than it was, Mm -hmm. just based on the way that things have shaped up. Um, uh, Which then also gets into a question... you know, of whether or not cards like Greater Gargadon need to show back up in Dredge. If Settle were to rise in popularity, I don't think it's there yet, but, like, then that becomes a thing that's that's interesting, you know, mm-hmm. to have as a potential possibility. For sure. Um, but it, overall, it comes down to a fundamental uh, decision about what modern is about and where you want to be, and to me, being reactive in modern is a bad place to be. I think that being proactive is, is a better is a better place to live overall, which is why I generally shy away from the, the like, Azorius control decks. Yeah, I've definitely played decks like Lantern a lot in the past, and while being reactive has problems, I think there are times where you can pick your spot correctly to be reactive. And, you know, we recently, I guess it's three weeks ago now, but we were on CC and we talked about the control decks, right? And Jeskai and Blue-White were, like, four and eight in the top ten of results-wise when it comes to points. I, I do think Blue White isn't a particularly well posi- well positioned right now, except for Grix's Death Shadow, you know. Luis made a video recently and it was like Burn, Death Shadow, Dredge, Arclight Phoenix were like his top and four. Tron. And Tron. Yeah. And you have a good matchup against all those except uh, Grix's Death Shadow, assuming you're willing to play the four field of ruin, which I would one hundred percent play. Yeah, absolutely. So, and like I said, I, I don't think that this is a terrible choice, this is the type of thing that you want to be. My question then comes down to is this the type of thing that you want to be? Sure. And I, I think if your goal is to win and you refuse to play a top, like one of the top two or three best decks, this is a good place to be. Yeah, and I, I will agree with you, or at least concede that it is better positioned now than it has been in previous constructs of the winner's metagame. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very well positioned right now. Like I would, if you made me play like that Royal Jazzytron, I would take that in heartbeat. For example, yeah. Also, it really hurts me to be continually put into the position of being the like counter voice <laughs> to blue white control. Which is a, a type of deck strategy in general, like taking it out of a format specific discussion is a type of thing that I like a lot. I would love to do like a versus live type thing for us and even odds, and I play blue white and you play like a gauntlet of five decks, and I just like we we play two out of threes and we upload to the Patreon. Yeah. I'd love to do that if you're down. I have sure. all this set up from Vanguard days. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. That's fun. Yeah, we're gonna let's do that next week. Uh so right, got a video thing planned. Can't wait to stomp you. So <laughs> Trey, what's your number four deck? You know what? We can play all your top five decks against me, too. That'll make it even more fun. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, my number four deck is Burn. Okay. Um, 
you know, Burn is a deck that's incredibly consistent. It got a couple of new pieces in recent sets. You know, you've got uh, Skewer the Critic, so now it has another Lightning Bolt. And then you also have Light Up the Stage, so now it has an efficient and effective card draw to go on top of everything else that it already had. Uh, I think that this deck was a, a relatively top performer before and just has gotten, you know, a couple of small pieces that make it more consistent and even better uh, than it was. Burn does what it do, and it, it does it very effectively. Yeah, Burn is really redundant, really consistent. In fact, it's so good. I think Cedric posted a list recently that had no new cards in it that he did very well with in like a mock challenge and like that. It's just like, yeah, because of how good Burn is, people put more life gain, so I just put my skull cracks back in. Just the deck is very good. It's hitting the critical mass where it's like, how many bolts does it really take for this deck to be insanely powerful? I'll say this. It's probably the number six deck on my list. It didn't make my top five. And I think part of that is, not that Burn's bad, but that people are aware of Burn. I actually, I um, I won an IQ last weekend, and in the top eight, I played against three Burn decks in a row. My top eight, my top four, and my finals was all Burn. I got to play against the listener of the podcast, Mac. It was fun playing you. And it, the deck is pretty good, but like if your deck, if your deck has plans for Burn, then you can beat them. You know, I came in with two extra Corsair Crucifix in my main deck of Amulet Titan, and I was able to have the incidental life gain, and it came up in almost all my matches. Um, and it is just a very powerful card to have. And there are cards that every color has that can combat burn. I think people are starting to play those cards because it's also pretty good against like the mono red arc light variants. And I do lump burn and arc light red into the same category, uh, just for reference sake. Cause I think they play out pretty similarly. Yeah, I think that that's fair. You know, it's just, you talked about getting to a critical mass of lightning bolts. It's, it's an interesting place to be for burn right now in the sense that they have so many lightning bolts available that you now have to pick which ones you want. Like, you can't just smash all the ones you have into a deck. And it turns out if you were to play, like, 36 bolts, it just wouldn't be enough, right? right. It's, like, it's just, like, actually not a good enough plan, which is weird. Yeah. Like, you would think that would be one of the best things you could do in modern. And it's still very good, obviously. But it wasn't good enough that either of us thought it would be the best thing, right? Like, I have a question. If I could give you a deck of 42 lightning bolts and six fetch lands and 12 mountains, would you play that? Probably not. Yeah, I, I'd be scared. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because one of the things that you need and one of the things that the burn decks do is you do, you need repeatable damage and not just burn, yeah. right? Which is why, like, Eidolon and uh, Goblin God and the other pieces that you have there are so important. Because you need those low-costed cards that are going to do four damage, six damage, more than just the one, you know, one card, three damage. Yeah, for sure. That's why creature draws are some of your best draws, right? It, it looks like it'd be your weakest, but they just aren't. Also, sorry, my nose is a little stuffy. Um, that, I've, that's all I have to say on Burn. Do you have anything else you want to say? No, that's not, uh, you know, the only thing that I would say is that, you know, the point that you made with Cedric is good, is that because there are so many options, like, this is a deck that you should be looking at the way the metagame is shaped up and what people are playing as hate cards, and this can, this is a deck that can adapt week to week. As to what it is that you think are the right pieces for that given week, there are enough relevant burn cards now that this is not a deck that would just necessarily be a stock list that you play every week, but it is adaptable. And a thing I think that people underestimate about what burn is. Yeah, just along that lines too, real quick. I, like I said, I just play my number six deck. When I'm ranking these decks, a lot of times I'm trying to think about like what's going on in the metagame as a whole. And that's why you see things like blue white, where it's like maybe not something that everyone sees, right? And if it was like a pillars of the format podcast, we wouldn't talk about blue white right now. But because it's like well positioned, I'm excuse me, I'm talking about it. Burn, I think, is not a deck that is it's kind of falling out of favor. And I also think it's just too hard for someone like me to play. And you know, I'd mean is I'm sure I could play Burn well, but I couldn't play Burn like Sandy Dog. Like 
they have so much experience of figuring out those hard spots. And the trick is burn is actually hard. Like the easy games are easy. And even the medium games are kind of easy. Because at a certain point, like if you just throw face, you're going to be right a certain percent of the time. But the hard games are so hard. And the margins are so thin that burn is just like too hard and high variance of a deck for me to reasonably take. Especially when it has a target on its back. Yeah, and it's a deck where sequencing is so important. Yeah. Just overall. Um, all right, well, that's that's it for Burn. So what's your quattro? What's number four? Dredge. Oh, <laughs> my heart. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people right now think Dredge is the second best or best deck in Modern. Like, everyone. And because of that, that's why Burn, that's why Dredge is number four. So, like I just said about Blue-White being a high on this list because of things, because Dredge is so perceived well... I think that people will be adapting and attacking, and as such, it falls a little bit on my tier list. And I think that the decks I'm about to talk about above it have reasonable plans against Dredge and can adapt. And I think the rest of the metagame is adapting around it. And it also suffers from people bringing in the wrong hate against Arclight that Splash hits it. Now, Dredge is in a position right now, and it will get better with London Mulligan, assuming we get that in the general public, of being very consistent and being able to fight through hate. But Dredge still has a fail rate. It still has bad matchups like Tron, Amulet Titan. They just like essentially can't beat, for lack of a better word. And those matchups are, I think, prevalent enough will only increase in popularity. And because of that, I am kind of a believer that Dredge is kind of going down in popularity. Well, I'm sorry, we'll go down in like, not maybe not popularity, but like positioning. And while it's still a very good deck and if like, Trey was like, hey, I'm going to play Dredge at the SCG Regionals that we both had to miss this weekend that we're recording right now over top of it. If Trey was like, I'm going to play Dredge, I'd be like, that's a good deck. You should play Dredge. Like, that sounds great. It's much better than Mill. And like, if, and I'm sure if I told Trey, I'm going to play Dredge, Trey would be like, that's a good deck. Let's talk about some sequencing, right? Because I've never played Dredge before. Uh, Dredge is also a deck that I think, like Burn, I don't think it's actually as hard as Burn, which is a weird thing to say, I know, because I think a lot of people think Dredge is stupid easy, but I think you have to be thinking about what you're trying to Dredge to and stuff like that, and I talked about it a lot back when it happened in November, but my game against Mateo, uh, I can tell that Mateo was one of the best Dredge players I ever played against because of how aware of what they were trying to Dredge to and or choose to draw step to, and that kind of stuff, I think, is a make and break against uh, for great Dredge players. So for me, I just kind of think Dredge is getting too much attention. So, uh, spoiler alert, Dredge is my number one deck. Oh, I didn't realize it was your number one. Okay, interesting. Yes. Now, admittedly, I've played a lot of Dredge. Uh, I, I like Dredge. It's a, it's a deck that I go to, uh, you know, quite a bit, in Modern specifically. Um, generally, what I think that you're saying is something that I would agree with, right? Which is, Dredge is a cyclical deck, right? When people are aware of Dredge, it's time to move away from Dredge and play something else. And then when people sleep on Dredge, they die to Dredge. Right, it, that is the like tale as old as time, as far as Dredge is concerned. Right, forget about Dredge, die to Dredge, mm-hmm. prepare for Dredge, beat Dredge. Right, but this is a really unique situation in the history of Dredge as a deck that I haven't really seen before in the modern life cycle, which is that there is a different popular deck that uses the graveyard that wants a different hate card in order to attack it. That's more effective against it and not as effective against Dredge. And that's the fact that Phoenix is one of the top decks and Surgical Extraction has now become like the de facto graveyard hate card of choice. Surgical Extraction is a good card and it is exceptionally good against Phoenix. And it's not like it has no value against Dredge. It's still good against Dredge. But where it's really powerful against Dredge if it's Surgical plus Snap, right? When you're like surgically multiple things. But like Dredge is so much more redundant of a deck as far as what the graveyard matter things are than Phoenix is that it's hard for just Surgical to like snipe a thing 
and that to be it. And so as the result of Dredge's awareness level has risen, but because of Phoenix, people aren't bringing in like alternate different types of graveyard hate from what I've seen so far. Now that might change. But as it stands right now, if Surgical Extraction is still the only Graveyard Hate spell that people are bringing or packing and expecting that being enough to beat Dredge, I don't know that that's enough to beat Dredge. I'll say Dredge and Arclight are so popular that Arclight players are main decking Surgical Extraction to have a free spell and to metagame the mirror and let that match up. Absolutely. And I mean, I have I have seen that. But still, like as a Dredge player, I'm happy to just play against Surgical Extraction. Like, if, if that means people are bringing that and they're not bringing Ley Lines, they're not bringing Relics, they're not bringing Tormod's Crypts or, you know, uh, Rips, if those things aren't there, Surgical is a thing that Dredge players can fight through. Sure, I, I think they still are doing that stuff, but it's just telling me that, like, the I think it is correct for Arclight players to be playing some number of Surgical's main deck. If that's the case, I'm going to stay away from Dredge. Because I think Arclight can battle through that. I don't think Dredge. I think, like, if you mulligan into six and you keep, like, a Faithless Looting Dredge hand and I surgical your Dredger, that's big game. So maybe we disagree there. And we're talking about more when we get to your number one for sure. Right. But I think that that's really the dynamic. I yeah. think we've touched on what the points are. And it would be normally I would agree with you mm-hmm. if it wasn't this weird situation with Arclight. For sure. Right, what's your number three deck? Uh, my number three deck is Grixis Death Shadow. Interesting. Talk about Grixis Death Shadow with me. I'm a big fan when the London Mulligan hits. Oh, for sure. I, you know, Grixis Death Shadow, you know, the, the story with Grixis Death Shadow has always been essentially the same, which is basically a legacy deck in modern. Mm-hmm. Like, it plays all one mana spells, all gigantic dudes for no mana, and it plays disruption, it plays counter spells, and then it just smashes with, like, one mana five fives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or twelve twelves, you know? Um... It is, like, the best Delver deck that exists in Modern, um, even though it doesn't play Delvers. I mean, it's essentially, like, structurally a Delver deck. And, you know, those are always extremely good against combo type of situations. When you say Delver deck, for people that hadn't played back then, what do you mean? So Delver deck is a deck that, like, uh, uh, it's funny. So Delver's uh, Delver deck, Delver of Secrets, was a card. It was a one-mana card, and then you play it, and then you use tempo cards like either discard or counter spells to then protect that card and then ride that to victory. So you kind of disrupt their strategy a little on the way? That's right. Okay. It's a tempo-based a tempo based deck. You play a cheap threat, and then you back up that cheap threat with counter spells or discard spells, and then you use that to then to beat. You know, Delver of Secrets was a, a card that turned into a 3-2 flyer, and that was your win. You know, Fairies was also a Delver deck, like these types of things that you just play something and you do it. You know, uh, the way that I, the why I say Grixis Death Shadow is the best Delver deck because you play a one mana five five as opposed to a one mana three two, and it's uh, but it's structured in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, but those types of strategies are always good against combo decks, like mm-hmm. just in general, like the very nature of it's like the paper rock scissors of things. Like these decks beat combo decks. They're also very good against control decks in a general sense because. You get in under counter spells by playing a big threat, and then they have to try to deal with your thing, and your whole deck is just disruption. Nice. Yeah, I think Grixis Death Shed is pretty well positioned right now. It's not on my top five list, just to be honest. I think, uh, you know, Twitter says it has no good matchups. And as of right now, I kind of agree. I think that your best matchup that's a top deck is Amulet Titan. I think that deck hasn't picked up the respect it deserves yet. And I think your Arclight and your Dredge matchup is miserable. And I think your, like, Word deck isn't good. Matchup isn't good. I don't think your Human matchup is good. You just have, like, no great matchups for top decks. But you kind of have a chance against everyone. You can stop on a lot of these Tier 2 decks. I think that's what the deck kind of 
tries to do. Yeah, I think I think when people are hyper mulliganing though with London Mulligan, it becomes the best deck. Yeah, and this is a deck that I think that you, if you were going to be playing this deck, this is a deck that you should be playing Leyline in for Dredge and for Phoenix because normally I don't know that Leyline is the best hate card against Phoenix decks, mm-hmm. but with Dredge or with Death Shadow specifically, the type of other cards that you play can deal with their alternate plan. Like them playing four mana three twos to attack you is not going to be good enough versus what it is that your plan is. Yeah, I can kind of agree with that for sure. Yeah, I think that deck's very good. It's very skill testing, and I I like it a lot. I just don't think it's a top five deck, personally. Well, so what's your next deck? War Prison. So this is a deck that has recently been getting a lot of attention, and I've seen this deck before in KCI was around, and I thought it was ridiculous to play that deck in a four, another deck had three EEs main deck and was doing a similar game plan of being like non-interactive in a weird way. But War Prison essentially tries to lock the opponent out of the game by leveraging uh, <laughs> leveraging Ensnaring Bridge and random weird hate cards that has like Dampening Sphere and Pithing Needle and Tormont, not Tormont Script, uh, Graph Digger's Cage in the main deck and just plays like these lock cards and can war for them, which is a Blue, 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 so three blue, X with improvised, which means you can tap artifacts to help pay for X, and then you can search your deck for a card that costs X or less. So you can go search up those things, and it plays multiple Welding Jars main deck as a way to protect their combo pieces, and it basically just doesn't lose the creature decks, because Insane Bridge is so powerful and locks people out, and then it wins through, like, Ip New River Letting, or, like, uh, and plus Crucible World, which can also go square lock its opponents out. And it does it with uh, Spell Bomb, and there's one other card that it sometimes wins. Oh, Thopter Sword combo. Mm-hmm. So there's like a lot of different ways the deck can win. So it has like reasonable game plans against a lot of decks, and it's very powerful, and it plays two of the best cards in modern. It, excuse me, Mox Opal and Ancient Strings. Yeah, th- this deck is interesting. I actually like this deck. I know that I've said that being reactive is not a place that you want to be in modern, but like being a prison deck specifically is like somewhat different. Um, and because of word, the versatility that you have of hate pieces gives you more options than you, what you would generally have in a control deck because like you can hedge so completely because you can like, I can play like this just lights out card and worst case scenario, I just throw it out here and use it to improvise for other cards that are actually relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I do like also that the win condition in this deck doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what it is as long as you have one. Like, yeah. if, if new Re- like playing one Ipnu Rivulet with a Crucible of Worlds, like, is enough, which then means you just open yourself up to so many different toolbox options. Um, this deck, uh, one thing that I would say about this deck for, as a downside is that tutoring is hard. It's very difficult to, like, think about what are going to be the right things in the right situation. And the fact that you have to build your entire game plan around making smart tutor decisions on turns in a format with as many different types of decks as modern, like this is going to be a very skill intensive thing to do. And you're also not really permitted a lot of mistakes because you have to completely lock your opponent out of the game. Like if you just kind of have control or kind of doing stuff, you're going to lose. Like you have to get to the point they can't win at all and then kill them with a land <laughs> or kill them with a popter sword. Yeah. Luckily, I think Ensnare Bridge does that for a so much of Modern that it makes the deck real. And that that's a big advantage, being the best Ensnaring Bridge deck. We've seen it with Lantern in the past. We've seen it with other decks. Like, Ensnaring Bridge is one of the best cards in Modern that just doesn't see enough play because it only fits in such niche strategies. Yeah, and, you know, this is a deck, too, that, like, a, a deck like Burn is going to give this deck some problems. Oh, uh, for it, sure. As a, as a real big game. 
And, you know, I mean, you have Witchbane Orb main deck, which is big against Burn. Yeah. But, like, that's a four cost, and you only play one of. It's difficult, necessarily. And Eidolon becomes a problem. Like, the Burn is a particularly hard matchup. Yeah. And, like, Arclight Red 2 is very fast. Um, those are definitely hard matchups, for sure. But I think you're so good versus so many different decks, and you have such potential, that I think this deck is only going to get better. And I don't think we have close to the best version yet, which is exciting. Yeah, I think so, because I don't know that there has been as much deck-building resources put into it yet, because it hasn't been as viable of a strategy until recently. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result of that, I think you're right. Especially when you're talking about a tool deck, toolbox deck, it's something that's going to continually adapt and evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like this deck. It didn't make my list, but I think that it's intriguing. Um, but I, I do think that this is one that if you're going to play it, you're going to want to put a lot of reps into it, because it's it's going to take some practice. It also, so this is one thing I kind of hate, but is true, is it has the thing where people aren't used to playing against it. So you do, for right now, have sort of an edge and, like, you know a game plan and they don't understand your game plan, which is, like, minimal. But I think the deck's better than that, too. But it's also a plus to playing the deck right now. It's like, hey, like, if you know what's going on and your opponent doesn't, that's huge game. Yeah, and it plays a confusing amount of cards. Like, it's not, if it's a deck that you're not... And it's so customizable, you can change those cards every week, too. And it's a deck that if your opponent's not familiar that that's a deck, you start playing cards out. No, they're going to, what is even happening? Judge, my opponent has Dampening Sphere in their main deck. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a weird situation to come up, um, because it just plays a bunch of nonsense cards. But the thing that's intriguing to me about it as well is you basically get to pre-sideboard for the majority of the metagame. Yeah. And if like the metagame's right for that, it's very powerful for you. Mm -hmm. Trey, what's your number two deck? Uh, My number two deck is, is it Phoenix? Ooh, why is it that? Oh, hey. that's barely a joke. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind. Um, you know, I, th- I think that this deck is very powerful and very consistent. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, the Phoenix cards have continued to prove themselves and chaining off valuable spells that continually to refill, refill your hand while pressuring your opponent and then also playing removal spells and then getting to like hit hard with Thing in the Ice. All of those things are very powerful and effective. Um, I've also been impressed with the versatility of this deck and using Thing in the Ice and playing it defensively, um, which is something that I think adds a lot of position and value to this deck. Like, you know, we've playtested like Amulet Titan versus this deck a lot, and I can also imagine similar situations against like Dredge, where, like, you have Thing in the Ice, and instead of just trying to smash with it as soon as possible, like, leaving them around for relevant turns to then flip, because the deck turns a corner so fast that once you kind of buy a turn by doing that from a defensive standpoint, it can just close the game so quickly. And I also like the fact that, short of, like, Surgical Extraction just taking all the Phoenixes, like, Graveyard hate spells aren't particularly all that relevant, because you can still just cast your spells. Well, you also just have Crackling Drake, too. Exactly. Crackling Drake is big game. Okay, you exiled all my stuff. Great. Drake is still huge and still just kills you in a swing. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to hate this deck out. It's hard to put a target on this deck and, and make it where it's not going to be effective. You know, I do think that Chalice is very good against the deck because all of the stuff is cheap because that's what it is that you have to do uh, in order to do it. And Surgical Extraction is also good, but it's just a deck that's resilient, redundant, and powerful. And I think that it's very well positioned right now. For sure. It's my number two deck as well. I'm going to go more into why it's my number two when we get to my number one. Um, but let's keep talking about the Arclight deck here before we do that. I think that one of the thing, crazy things about this deck is, we talked about this, I guess, three weeks ago now. We talked about it in the Patreon episode. There's so much that can be done with this deck. This deck plays 20 cantrips. 
Manamorphos, Faithless Looting, Opt, Serum Visions, and Sleight of Hand, I believe is what Owen was playing. Uh, to Town Trade. I think something like that, yeah. Yeah, so Owen played 20 cantrips and played a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of one-ofs. And that's something this deck gets to do. Like, it just gets to do that. And one thing we talked about is, like, you're allowed to play, like, weird things in your sideboard because the splash is so easy. But also, like, Owen just used Manamorphose and splashed Leyline on the board. Like, that's just something you're allowed to do. Because of how often you see those cards and how powerful they are in your opening hand, it's very good. Yeah, and, it, and it's... Thought Scour. That was the card. Thought Sorry. Scour. It yeah. hit me as soon as I passed it to you. <laughs> Thought, Thought Scour is, uh, makes sense. Yeah. Um, it, it's also interesting in the idea that, like, the core of this deck is so good, there's not necessarily a consensus as to what, like, two to three spots in the main deck should be. Because the rest of the deck is so powerful and so consistent, it's like, ah, you can kind of just put some cards in there and probably be okay. And there's not a consensus as to what should be optimal. I mean, I've seen Young Pyromancer, I've seen Terramander, I've seen Pyromancer's Ascension, which has gone mostly away, but then Owen played it as a one-of. Like, I Yeah, mean, can I read Owen's one-of slots real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So, Owen had the, the 20 cantrips, 4 Bolt, 4 Arclight, 4 uh, Thing in the Ice, 2 Crackling Drake, and then... So what, what we talked about is like that's basically the core of yeah. the deck. Then the two surgicals, which we both kind of agree is like one or two is right. And then his one of slots are his one gut shot, one twisted image, one lightning axe, one terramander, one pyromancer ascension, one is a charm. Yeah, which are basically all of the different one ofs that have been considered for the flex spots in the deck. And it's like well, you just play all of them, <laughs> and he gets access to like he finds them all so consistently when they're good. Yeah. And twisted image is an insane card in the mirror. So oh, thing in the ice and crackling drake both just yes die. So. Yeah, it's insane. The deck has so much versatility. And so let's talk about my number one deck in modern, since we know Dredge is yours, and we'll come back to it here in a second. And I think it's important why I say that Arclight's insane, but it didn't make my number one slot. And I think it's a deck that has the most open slots. Uh, it has the most like flexibility and open. It's the most under, maybe the second most underexplored deck. It might be a war that's actually the most underexplored top deck right now, but only because it hasn't got to stay in the sun yet. Um in the game Super Smash Brothers Melee, Leffen did a tier list, and he, he talked an interesting thing about banning a character called Jigglypuff. So what you all just need to know is that Jigglypuff is a character in Melee that is very powerful, but is kind of quote-unquote lame and very defensive and punishing. And there's another character called, character called Fox that is very powerful, combat-oriented, and considered, uh, combo-oriented and considered by a lot to be the best character in Melee. Is Jigglypuff a Pokemon? Yes, it's a Pokemon. What's a Pokemon? We'll talk about that later. Okay. Uh, and so Fox is considered the best. In fact, there's like there was this old joke uh, slash theory some people had at 20XX. And in the future, we only play Fox because everyone's mastered the game to the point where it only makes sense to play Fox. And let me talk about how, in the abstract, that is true. Fox is the best deck, right? It's like the best thing you could be doing. But in reality, what happens is Jigglypuff doesn't punish your mistakes as much. Jigglypuff punishes your opponent's mistakes a lot. Jigglypuff's kind of easy to do, and you do a, like, relatively to the other characters, right? And, like, on a huge stage level, it's easier than Fox to play. And as such, Jigglypuff doesn't get punished as much. I think Arclight Phoenix is the Jigglypuff, comparative to what I think the number one deck is, which is Amulet Titan. I think, in theory, if there are, like, no outside factors, there's no tired, there's no anxiety, there's no money on the line, there's no this, there's no that, Amulet Titan is the best deck in modern. And that's why I put it at number one. But I wanted to have that caveat that I think Arclight Phoenix, when you actually play tournaments, turns out to be the number one because it has that sort of failsafe of like, listen, 
the matchup's not that good. I might be tired, but I got two Phoenixes and a Faithless sitting in my hand. I'm probably going to bring this thing back on turn two and hit you for six. So, like, okay. You know, we're like, oh, I'm playing a creature matchup, and I drew two Mana like, thing in the ice hand. It's probably flipping really quick. And I think those little things matter a lot. So I think the number one deck in modern right now is Amulet Titan in a vacuum. Maybe it probably plays out as number two when you actually get to things because of tournament and whatnot. But Amulet Titan does some of the most powerful things in modern and does it so consistently. The deck is making a lot of innovations right now between Coalition Relic, Wayward Sword Tooth, those kind of things that allow them to have extra land drops, extra mana ramp, play around things like Blood Moon in the form of Coalition Relic. To, because Coalition Relic basically lets you cast your Titan through Blood Moons. Um, while still ramping you like an Azusa does on it by playing a, a three-mana play that ramps you into a Titan. So the deck is making a lot of innovations. It can play all the colors. It can do all the colors well, and it can adapt. And it's got the same thing as Arclight, where it's so good, but there's no consensus best deck right now, and it's always changing up. And it can adapt. You know, like, Secure Tribe Scout was kind of a liability back when people were playing four gut shots in their main deck, and the Mono Red Phoenix was the best deck. So they adapted and put Wayward Swordtooth in their main deck. And it's like, hey, if everyone's going to play Bolts, I'll play a 5-5. Five five. And, like, I don't kill you on turn two as much, but, like, I got a 5-5 five five that you just don't interact with. And I'm playing double lands. And my deck that generates extra mana all the time, double lands is broken. So Amulet Titan, in my opinion, is the best deck. It has an insane dredge matchup. As long as Arclight doesn't draw Blood Moon, I feel like it has a good Arclight matchup. I think it has a bad Grixis Death Shadow matchup, but you can't always have great matchups. I think it has an amazing burn matchup, especially when you make the Corsair Crucifix adaptation like I did, which also helps you against Arclight Phoenix. I think it has a great control matchup. I think its human's matchup is meh, but it's not unlose. It's not like uh, unbeatable. So I think Amulet Titan is the best. And it also, there's the kind of the joke we talked about earlier of Grixis Death Shadow saying there are no bad matchups. Amulet, I'm sorry, has no good matchups. Amulet Titan has no bad matchups. Because you have these draws that are turn two kill draws. And against any deck, they like most decks can't actually beat that draw, even if the matchup's like 90-10. Because you just kill them on turn two. Like, how do they respond? And having access to draws like that is very powerful in modern. Yeah, I, I think the deck is quite good. I would have probably listed it as my number six deck. I think it's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and... and You've been playing the deck for a while, and so we've been talking about the deck a lot, and playing. I've been playing against the deck a lot as a result of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very good deck for the reasons that you said. There's one thing that I wanted to touch on, which is the uh, Arclight Phoenix matchup, just as a point for people that are that are find themselves in this matchup and everything else. Something that I have seen Arclight Phoenix players do is assume that their deck only operates in one way. Like, that I'm just supposed to cast as many things I can and put as many Arclight Phoenixes in play as I can and just try to do that every turn, and I'm the, like, beat-down aggro player. And that there are times when you have to reassess what your role is, and weirdly enough, against, like, the Amulet deck, like, you have to be more of the defensive player, and you have to be more of the controlling-type player, because the only thing that matters is making sure that the Amulet player can't combo off. No, they can't get a tight end. That's it. Once I get a tight end, it's normally over. That's right. But, like, the only the only thing you should be structuring your turns around are that... Because the, the Phoenix deck has the ability to close games so quickly that it's something that, uh, against combo decks, you have to be conscious of, that you need to be disruptive, and you don't need to necessarily be focused on, like, trying to beat down as quickly as possible, because you'll lose the race, because Amulet can kill so quickly. Yeah. But if you can disrupt them and then slam, you, you can get into a much better and more favorable situation. And it's a thing that I haven't seen people doing when playing that matchup that they need to be doing. Yeah. So here's something that I think a lot of you are probably thinking is, man, Amulet Titan is too hard for me to play. And I kind of made this this tweet that, like, every deck in Magic is hard. I think Nick Prince brought up a good counterpoint that, like, while, yes, every deck is hard, and I'm technically right, 
there are decks that are harder than other decks, and Amulet Titan is one of the harder decks. I would say that if you think Amulet Titan looks like a fun deck to you, and you like playing combo decks and that kind of stuff, don't be afraid, because that's what people were saying about KCI, and what happened is, is once people started playing KCI, they're like, oh, it's hard, but like, we can learn this, and we will get better, and we have like the best deck here. And I think Edgar's doing what Matt Nass did, where Edgar Malganhans is destroying the SCG circuit right now with Modern, and he's playing Amulet Titan every time, and he is absolutely crushing it. I mean, he had a, I believe they, they lost the triple Amulet deck, uh, top eight that they had, but he and two teammates at the beginning of this, this format we have right now, the Banalist, played triple Amulet Titan, and they got top four, I believe, or maybe the finals. Then Edgar top eighted solo, and then Edgar got like, 10th and then Edgar lost in the classic like over six weeks he has like four good results which is insane especially when it's like one person who while they are like kind of one of the better like them and Daryl Ayers are considered like the Amulet Titan masters or whatever even masters can learn stuff from other people and if you're like the only people working on a deck like well there aren't that many people working on a deck you're just gonna miss technology and stuff and the fact that they're doing that shows how insane the deck is. Now, one thing that I would say it's a good comparison when you're talking about KCI is that while there are difficult loops and there's difficult situations, they are decks that you can practice by yourself. You don't have to be playing games. You don't have to be doing things. You can, like, just look at situations and you can, like, they're essentially just all puzzles, right? Yeah. And so, like, goldfishing and or just looking at puzzle situations and trying to figure out what the kill are can familiarize you with what the loops and the shortcuts are to the point that the deck's not that difficult to navigate. Yeah, I would also say that pattern recognition matters a lot, or like getting to Titan is kind of the goal. And once you get to Titan, you can kind of assess like, is this a kill? Yes or no? Would they have reacted if they had an answer? Yes or no? Do I just need to step another Titan or do I need to go for it? And you kind of recognize pattern recognition the more you play the deck, and that becomes easier as time goes on. And also like, it's like you said, it's a deck that you can just goldfish and you can figure out like the the complicated turns of like using all the mana you can practice on your own and then once you get into games with people we have that kind of stuff down you can focus on playing around what they have and that, that's hard and i did do a deck tech on the constructed criticism network where i talk about my iq winning deck so if you like the show do not subscribe to the network's uh feed go check that out it's about 20 minutes long it's also on youtube so yeah now unrelated to those things specifically primeval titan is my enemy and i refuse to ever play with it because i'm stubborn Primeval Titan mates for sure. That card <laughs> rocks. Very strong. Let's talk about your number one deck. Primeval Titan, Amulet Titan is very good. It's hard, but don't let that scare you. Let that be a challenge. Hard things in life shouldn't scare you off if possible. Right. Uh, and again, I've already talked about that. It's my number one deck is Dredge. Yeah. Uh, I think the Dredge is very powerful, very consistent. I mean, it, it's, you know, the thing that game one, you should win the majority of your game ones almost every time you play Dredge. Unless you're playing against Amulet Titan. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but that, that's one of the appeals and draws to the deck, right? Yeah. Is that just people don't really interact with what it is that you're doing, and what you're doing cheats. What you're doing breaks all the rules of magic. You basically get to play, like, draw fives and draw sixes and, and just do silly stuff every turn. It's funny, um, both our decks basically break the rules. Like, I just play a bunch of lands and put out six drops on turn three, you know? That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I qualified, uh, you know, for the Pro Tour playing this deck in a previous a previous situation and like the, to to get to that point I had a game against a Titan player where they had uh turn two they had turn one relic that they popped on turn two and then I had and, and then they also had turn three anger of the gods and lost because I just put like Titan well, shift. Yeah I just yeah. put like ten power on the board on turn two or, or turn one and then like 
just killed them with a conflagrate, you know, a turn later. Like, it, yeah. it, the deck can, it's like, okay, you have all the hate cards and all the things lined up, and you still can just lose to it. Like, it, it's very powerful. Um, and the deck does have a lot of play. It, the turns are complicated a lot of the times. Sequencing matters a lot of the times, and deciding whether or not to draw or dredge, or how to dredge, or what to do, or whether or not you need to, like, not play anything so that you can discard the hand size or do like there are so many different decision points that are there in playing the deck um that that there's a lot of stuff to keep in mind but it, it does a lot of things and whether or not you should be playing like like bridge builds with greater gargadon or some of these other things like there are decision points and innovations that you can make depending on how people are trying to hate you out um but it's a deck that i like a lot and i i think that it's a very good choice right now for the metagame Yep, I think Dredge is totally reasonable, like I said before. If you agree with Trey's number one pick, might I suggest Amulet Titan? It's your favorite matchup. Beyond easy. It's so good. It's insane. Which is another reason I would say Primeval Titan is my enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't lived till you played against Dredge. <laughs> I played against them round four, knew they were on Dredge, and I had the turn three combo hand with backup Bajukabog in hand, and I was like, ah, I mess up your combo, play a Titan on turn three still. <laughs> easy game, easy life. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing. You can beat main deck Surgical Extraction much better than you can beat main deck Bajukabog. <laughs> yeah, it turns out if you, like, basically exile their graveyard every single turn, they can't interact with you very well, which is, in, especially if they mulligan. How unfortunate for them. <laughs> uh, jokes aside, yeah, I hope y'all enjoyed our top five decks in modern. I hope you interesting, got some different viewpoints. We definitely, you know, we didn't want to talk about just like what even this perceived best five decks are. We want to talk about what we think are because modern's always changing. Even if it, even if it isn't changing, but more rotating, the rotation is happening all the time. And so it's important to keep your eyes out on that. And it's important to talk about these decks that are like starting to rotate into the top five. Because those are the decks you need to keep your eye on. And that's what the, the really great modern players are doing. So, Yeah. Yep. No, that's it. I, that's great. I don't have anything to add. I think that that is a spot on. Yep. So if you like this show and you would like to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash evenoddspod. The show will always be free. But if you feel like the show is going back to you and we get a little extra out of the show, check it out. We've got some pretty cool rewards. You can do the call-in like Tim and Ellison have done so far. You get on the Discord, talk to us. You can help pick your own Patreon-only episode, which we're about to do, one that Lucas made for us. So, Lucas, if you're listening to this, buddy, check out patreon.com. Your episode's up right now. So... Very exciting to have that happening. Super fun. Once again, we do want to apologize about the two-week hiatus there. It was definitely not the intent. But sometimes it'd be like that, Trey. <laughs> sometimes it'd be like that. It really did. And it's not something that we take lightly, and we were pretty disappointed that that's the way it played out. So, yeah, to say I was mad is beyond the truth. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Mason it, got wow okayed in real life, which is... <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you enjoy the show, though, you want to check out the network, check out the Constructive Criticism Network. We had John Stern, Seth Mansfield, Spencer Howland doing CCMTG over there, doing a great job, really covering the Grand Prix circuit. Um, they just did their Back from the Pro Tour episode, so that was interesting. Seth actually hosted that episode, so very mixing it up, always trying new things, always improving over there, and that's their slogan. Uh, wow, I'm about to say logo and slogan at the same time it's slogan came out which is like the worst mm -hmm. combination possible of those two yeah that would be like the worst sequel to logan ever tune in next summer for slogan <laughs> <laughs> he's slower than a regular logan yeah well he, he, got, he got messed up at the end spoilers <laughs> uh then also make sure to check out the rest of the show's network we got common knowledge the popper podcast if you want to, if you love Popper, you can, they just had the, uh, the MCQ, Mythic Championship qualifier that they streamed the top eight for it. And I don't think they understood how slow Popper was going to be when they did that. Uh, I loved watching that coverage. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, hopefully enough yeah. people did that we have more events like that. The Popper GP is coming. 
I've been saying it for a year. I'll say it till it happens because I know it's going to happen. I think some people found it to be a tortured existence. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you can also check out Homeward Path from an MTG dad, kind of busy living life on the road, being busy all the time. It's hard to play magic. Check out that podcast to relate, and also make sure to check out The Hive Mind. It's a MTG talk show. They just had Cat Light on, and I think they just officially announced their next guest. So I don't want to spoil anything, so check out uh, MTG Hive Mind. They just did an episode with Cat Light. Hopefully, they get Zan on. Big Zan fan. Zan needs to do his own podcast. Zan, if you're somehow listening, reach out to CCMTG the network. You do great work. Best player on the SEG Tour. That's all I'm saying. And I'm going down on the hill. That's my hill I die on. Is we, that Zane is the best consistent SEG player. We all pick our ditch to die in. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you everyone for rolling with us. And we'll see you all next week. Trey, did we come up with a wow? Okay. I don't think so. Um... But I don't know if you were paying attention to Magic Twitter at all yesterday, but there seemed like there might have been some activity. Yeah, they released the new War of the Spark information. There's 36 Planeswalkers in the next set. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, I think that I had heard that that might have been a possibility, and there's some people that seem pretty excited about it, and some people seem pretty disappointed about it. Yeah, Limited's going to be crazy. I don't know how people are going to test for the Pro Tour. Um, the Mythic Championship. Wow. Okay, are we just not going to talk about the fact that Amaz lost his uh, invitation to the, uh, the the tournament at PAX East, and that as a result they've invited an additional streamer to come in, and that Jeff Hoogland lost his mind on Twitter? Honestly, this whole thing's being improv right now, so I had no idea where we were going. <laughs> <laughs> we really forgot to do a wow okay. <laughs> wow, okay. I mean... Hoogland had a reputation of being someone who was constantly talking trash, banning people from his chat, banning people from his Twitter, and generally creating a bad environment and difficult time. And then, as a result of that, he didn't get invited to the tournament that was there for popular streamers. Then he got upset by the fact that he didn't get invited for popular streamers, and the way that he tried to deal with that by doubling down by completely talking trash about Wizards, flicking them off on Twitter, and then starting to post all these other kinds of things that required him to issue an apology this morning. It's called biting the hand that feeds you. It's a difficult situation, and it doesn't matter how good you are at magic or anything else, or however many people watch your stream, if it's not a situation that's going to help them promote the game or to sell cards, then they're not going to invite you to their tournament. Wow! Okay! Maybe your actions reflect upon you. Roll with us next week. <laughs>